know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome back, Lisa. Happy to be here. So what's up this week? Well, I put some finishing touches on my case management course. Thanks for asking, because I always want to talk about that. My effective case management with Human Trafficking Survivors course is going to start March 1st. Um, and I think I'm going to run the a beta version at uh, a cheaper rate with just a few people in it, because I... I want to learn from them as well as them taking the course and learning to increase their skills and their knowledge. I want to be asking them questions about what they think about the layout and, you know, how we form the questions at the end of each chapter and things like that. So, well, what do you have left to do? I thought you did everything. Well, um, I mean, I had to check in with some friends. So, you know, some people that know a lot more about specific things than I do. So, you know, I spent time talking to my friend, uh, Sarah Ladd in Minnesota. Um, She's amazing. She's brilliant and all the things. And, you know, I've I've just been trying to recruit her to do some things with us for a long time. And um, so look out, Minnesota, because, you know, I'm trying to steal her away and a couple of other people if I can. Well, I mean, isn't that what we've always done at the Institute? I mean, don't we have a reputation for stealing the best? Uh, Indeed, we do. We certainly try. Uh, Man, there has been so many like awesome podcast guests and just people that I would just love to steal and, you know, but I can't afford them. But, you know, if I could just if I had the time to just hang out with a lot of the people, a lot of the podcast guests and people I know, you know, all across the country, around the world, at the state level, just some amazing people. And sometimes when I hear their stories on the podcast, you know, I just, I want to quit what I'm doing and I want to go help them do what they're doing. Oh, definitely. Like the stories are so compelling. Um, Speaking of that, so how's the Redwood thing going? Oh, love the Redwood United class I'm doing that, you know, but, and if you miss that, uh, go back and listen, because the guy that runs Redwood United, he, uh, we do a podcast together, but so for people that don't know, he teaches nonprofits and people who have for profits um, to be successful personally, as well as professionally. So there's seven roots that you focus on and like, you know, in a Redwood tree, uh, there are lots of roots, and so it's all symbolic, and it makes a lot of sense. And I've only been in there a couple of weeks, and what I really learned is out of seven roots, I probably have about two roots. So it's like my two roots are work and and hard work. So um, my tree is not balanced, and uh, it's going to topple over. So I'm trying to get some balance in my life, and I'm learning. And so it's an amazing course, though. I'm really enjoying it, though. Okay. So who do we have uh, up this week? You want to tease it a little? 
Yeah, yeah, I do because we have a phenomenal person. Her name is Amy Joy, and she's a survivor. She's also a PhD student, and she also has her own company, and she works in the area of human trafficking, educating people, and she also happens to have dissociative identity disorder. And that's uh, multiple personality disorder, right? Yeah, but we don't call it that anymore because of the stigma that's associated with multiple personality disorder and all the misunderstandings and all the movies and stuff that got it basically wrong. So um, it develops because of either continued trauma or some studies that say extreme trauma. Um, And so they now call it DID. uh, And you know, I'm, I'm really happy to bring this because I think working particularly with a lot of human trafficking survivors, um, we need to know about what this is. And, um, you know, the advocates need to know what it is and we need to learn about it, reduce the stigma around it. So it's, um, it's very fitting uh, to have this expert, Amy Joy, um, talking about this issue. So yeah, and I, I didn't really know much about DID. Yeah, me either. Yeah, so we're going to learn a lot from her. So without further ado, my interview with Amy Joy. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast. Today I have Amy Joy, and she is the CEO of Human Trafficking Education Seminars. So we're going to dive in. We're going to talk about that, her seminars and human trafficking. And then she's also getting her PhD in dissociative identity disorder. So we want to teach all of you about how to just learn enough about it to where you might suspect you have a client that might be suffering from this disorder so that you can get them in front of someone who can do a full evaluation, full screening, and then help them get on their path to recovery. Amy Joy is a survivor a survivor who is now thriving and giving back across the United States and also getting her PhD and check this out. Also teaching at Lansing Community College. She's teaching a human trafficking course. So this woman is everywhere. And I'm so glad that we have had enough time today. She's given us enough time today so that she can educate us on her human trafficking seminars, and on this particular type of disorder. So welcome, Amy. I'm so glad that you could be here. Oh, me too. Thank you so much. I mean, this is like so much fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's so awesome. I can't believe. So tell me about how you became the CEO of something called Human Trafficking Education Seminars. Um, Sure. So uh, about 10 years ago, I attended a women's uh, retreat And um, really had no idea about human trafficking, uh, but the entire weekend was themed around human trafficking. I I just, (laughs) I went up there to get away from my kids for a weekend. So I was like, oh, whatever, you know. Um, So I got up there and the main speaker, the missionary was talking about human trafficking and um, she was talking my life. I just had no idea that there were laws surrounding this kind of thing. I just, I really didn't know human trafficking was what it was, and especially here in the U.S. So um, that weekend changed everything. Um, I sort of had this uh, undying passion to do something. I just didn't know what. 
So I um, ended up talking to a bunch of friends. We opened up a nonprofit and the goal was to open up a home for girls. Um, and, you know, in the process, we paid, became this education piece. Um, and we did help quite a few adult victims along the way or survivors along the way. Um, and learned a lot from that, but the education piece really stuck. So the human trafficking education seminars came about uh, about four years ago um, to train, you know, any group that was that was wanting, you know, education on this, whether it was healthcare or, um, you know, our education professionals or lodging establishments. So um, we filled in a gap that just wasn't here in Michigan uh, when the, the mandate for healthcare professionals came out. So uh, we really saw ourselves just step into the need. Um, and it's really just become a passion. I, I, I don't know what it is about teaching, but it just takes me to a whole nother place. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I just feel like I was, I'm, I'm meant to be here, you know, um, working in this field and teaching. So. Well, I think you've experienced a lot. You've lived it. You have the authenticity and, you know, when something speaks to your soul, it speaks to your soul and it tells yeah. you very clearly in some people <laughs> what you should be doing. Yes. And, you know, I mean, some, a lot of people I've experienced myself have tried a couple of different things and didn't really gain a lot of traction. And mm-hmm. then when you hit the nail on the head and you get to the thing that your soul is telling you, you should be doing, that's yeah. when you're on fire and you make it work. So tell us who have you been educating? Have you been across cities? Have you been across states educating people? Yeah. So we have been everywhere. Um, I haven't been to the West coast yet, but we've been um, up and down the East coast, Alabama, Florida, um, even over to Nebraska and Missouri. Um, so, you know, we've been in Ohio and Indiana, so we've been just everywhere. It, um, and it's pretty much been word of mouth across the national or the national, you know, spots. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Michigan, we do advertise a little bit more, but locally people know that this is what we do. So, um, so we don't really market a whole lot. We just word of mouth. Hey, she was here. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but and yeah, so do you, everywhere. how do people get in touch with you if they want to have a seminar? Yeah. So we've got, um, the website is um, human trafficking education seminars.com. Um, that's, that's easy enough. It's yeah. easy enough. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, so my we, email is just, you know, Amy joy presents at Gmail. So <laughs> it's, that's very, awesome. Yeah. So how, um, do you educate a certain population of people or anybody who asks you and how do you change? I mean, do you have all prepackaged, uh, seminars or how do you go about that process? Yeah. So it was sort of, it was an evolutionary process. We started with the basics and um, community groups and churches. And then um, because of my mental health background, so I've got, you know, social work degree and then a business degree and now psychology. Um, so I really honed in on mental health. So a lot of our um, clients were, were mental health professionals, but also um, here in Michigan, because of the healthcare man, we've had to depending on who's listening, right? So our nurses are going to get a little bit different education than our mental health. Um, so we do design it based on the audience. Um, you know, we throw in the disorders and things like that, that make sense to the mental health professionals. And we throw in more of the red flags and the emergency situations for nurses. Um, and of course, you know, when it comes to like hotels and motels, that's a totally different sector. So we modify things to um, make sure that we're addressing issues specific to the audience we're talking to, um, even to law enforcement. So, you know, we've trained probation officers um, on what to look for, but that, you know, that's a different presentation. We do have packaged 
presentations, mostly for um, mental health professionals and the lodging establishment um, folks down in Florida. So there's a package on our website that they can purchase for like $249. It's got the USB, all the training stuff, all the materials and all that in my book. And um, so it's easy. They can just train themselves once they get all the material. But um, most of what I do now because of the whole COVID thing is, is, um, via zoom. <laughs> so, um, well, I'm yeah. sure that's why you're successful because you start with the, with the base, like, like cooking, you start with the base and then you're adding the different flavor that mm-hmm. speaks particularly to the particular audience, which I think is way better than just the human trafficking one-on-one. Right. So what is this book you mentioned? It's actually called human trafficking one-on-one. <laughs> right. Is it? No way. Is it? but I wrote a book it came out in 2018 um I'm looking at this book and it says human trafficking 101 so they will have to call you if they want more than that but they can get the general overview Mm -hmm. right there so how many ways can you offer it you have it in writing You'll yeah, so it's um, it's ebook and you can get paperback. It's um, on Amazon. It's super cheap, but it actually includes a lot of the mental health stuff. It includes um, a lot of the different sectors that we teach to, but in a very brief um, kind of way. So it's a it's a quick read. It's very clear. It's appropriate for like ages twelve and up. So it's not going to get all nitty gritty, mm-hmm. um, but it's a really good place to start for people who don't quite understand or they just need a desk reference. Hey, is this what I'm looking at? And they can look mm-hmm. up some resources. Um, so it was just something I felt that was needed, so we can touch on each different area and um, and get the basics out there. So yeah, and they can pick that up in Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. It's um, Human Trafficking 101 Story, Stats, and Solutions. And it's published under Amy Joy. I love that because much like we do this podcast, people want the information. They mm-hmm. want it quickly. They don't want a bunch of flowery stuff. Just give right. me information because I'm busy and I need to move on. So right. I think that's a great idea, reading mm-hmm. the book and then calling you if they want any specific mm-hmm. detailed information and presentation. So yeah. You're also getting your PhD in dissociative identity disorder. You're specializing in that. And and that has me very curious. (laughs) What is dissociative identity disorder, first of all? Um, Well, it was traditionally called multiple personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been relabeled um, in the last DSM-5 to just sort of get rid of the negative stigma that came along with that. Um, But pretty much what it is, is, you know, dissociation exists on a spectrum from, you know, daydreaming, what we call highway dissociation. You know, I missed my exit because I was off swimming somewhere in Hawaii in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, So we all do that. Um, But for those who've been through trauma, uh, they go through a series of of dissociative episodes. and especially if you hear victims talk about, or, you know, survivors talk about, um, you know, I, I saw it happening to me from across the room, or I watched it happen to me. I was like floating on the ceiling. Um, that's something we call depersonalization. So it's the process of the actual mind is separated from the physical body. And it's a mechanism that's just built into every human to protect the whole person from the traumatic event so that tomorrow I can wake up and not be a complete mess. <laughs> so mm-hmm. tomorrow I could wake up and, and go to school or take care of my kids or do whatever I need to do um, without living in the trauma. So um, 
dissociative identity disorder comes about during traumatic events. And generally um, what we attach that to is that depersonalization process. Um, those events sort of get trapped in our um, implicit or unconscious um, parts of our brain. And because trauma is occurring, parts of our brain, like the hippocampus, that's responsible for um, integrating, right, unconscious into conscious memory into something I can wake up tomorrow and say, hey, this happened. It gets stuck. It gets stuck in this unconscious implicit. Um, and for those who have DID, dissociative identity disorder, uh, oftentimes those parts, those pieces that take on the trauma uh, grow with the person. They have their own ages, their own names, their own hobbies and likes and dislikes. And, um, and most of them have a specific role. Like they were there to, you know, to take on the pain or they were there to get the schoolwork done, or they were there to, um, make sure family was happy. You know, um, some of them are protective, you know, so, um, they all have a purpose and a place, uh, but it's the way that our mind protects us during trauma. It is essential survival. And so how common is it for someone to be diagnosed with DID or have DID? Yeah, so the recent uh, statistic is about three and a half percent of the population. So it's not quite as rare um, as people have believed it to be. Uh, it's, it's about as common as being a redhead. <laughs> so, um, oh, wow. And yeah. What, is it more profound or more pronounced in people who have trauma early on, like in childhood or is the, what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. Generally speaking, when we're talking about developmental trauma, DID occurs before the age of nine. Um, so during those really pivotal developmental years where we're struggling with, you know, obviously all those different stages, the pre-operational stage and all those things, um, the brain is trying to figure out who they are, like, you know, who you are as a cohesive whole person. Um, but when trauma happens early, it really messes that up. <laughs> so it's not a linear prog progression. It's sort of like I get stuck in these little pockets and these little holes. Um, so instead of coming out into adulthood, this one cohesive linear learning experience, I've come out into adulthood with 25 different pockets or holes and who have developed into their own personalities. And um, does it matter the level of trauma or the the complex complexity of the trauma can one-time trauma occur and trigger this beginning of DID or is this chronic long-term trauma that someone attempts to cope with? Um, typically speaking, we're talking about intense long-term trauma. Um, but there are some studies that suggest like if there was uh, like one extreme, um, say a medical event that happened um, to a child that could elicit uh, the beginning of a DID episode. And then once, once a fracturing happens, once it happens once, it's easier than for it to happen again and again and again and again, because then the, the brain is like, oh, this is, this is an easy way to survive. Um, this is the best way that we know to survive. So, and so yeah. is there a, a, an average number of identities when someone has prolonged trauma and, and experiences DID? Um, right now, I think it's like 12 to 35 is the average number of personalities. Um, I, I know some who have upwards of two or 300. I'm not sure how they keep track. But like it's, it's hard wow. enough in the mid teens, but, um, but yeah, typically, you know, you're talking, mm -hmm. you know, 15 to 35 ish. Um, because once the body learns that this is a coping mechanism there, it's doomed to repeat. Or, yes. Or highly yes. likely to be repeatable. So what we see on television is, is that someone, um, 
who has DID and, and they may lose time for a couple of days. They don't remember what happened under this other identity. Is that just television or is that what really happened? No, that's absolutely, it's called uh, dissociative am- amnesia. Um, and it, it absolutely happens. So um, there are some people and there are some instances where what we're called co-conscious. So you've got two parts that are present at the same time. Usually one part is up front and sort of, you know, driving the bus, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you might have other parts who are just sort of looking on from the background. Uh, but a lot of times, especially during, you know, extreme traumatic phases that these um, parts are very uh, separated from the others and they front a lot of times all the others get pushed back. And then, you know, if they're in control for two days and they went grocery shopping and they took the kids to school and all of these things. Um, and then the host or the, the one that occurs um, most naturally, you know, comes back, they might have missed two or three days. Um, it's very common to miss a few hours at a time, you know, that's, that's, and I know some people, even average people, you know, do that, but, <laughs> but, um, but not necessarily to the degree that those with DID do. Um, it is odd to lose time. Uh, you know, you're just not sure. And then it's sort of like a backtracking. Okay. What did I do? What did I say to who, you know, having conversations with people, you don't remember having conversations with, and we're like, remember you said this and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then are there certain triggers that, uh, under certain level of stresses or what makes mm -hmm. one's identity change into another identity? Absolutely. So I would, I would point to the example, I should probably give the disclaimer, I have DID. So um, you probably already assumed that anyway, but um, so I'm just going to use myself as an example. But in a situation where there, where it feels threatening, Mm -hmm. right? So if there's somebody yelling or screaming, or there's, there's something going on, there will be a switch um, to a protective part. And that part will come on and, and, and take over. Um, to protect the whole system from, you know, whatever might happen. Um, so that's, that's very common. Also, you know, um, I know like working with a therapist and that kind of thing, there are certain things that, you know, if, if she's behaving in a, in a way that's very motherly, then a lot of the littles will come out, you know, so there are definitely triggers um, that bring out certain parts more than others. And I would imagine some, yeah, when there's a safer environment, Maybe that could be it. all the triggers I, I would imagine don't have to be negative or stressful. Some right. could be very kind and loving. So how did you realize or who diagnosed and what age and, you know, all the things to share with us how yeah. you found out that you had the ID? Yeah. So um, a few years ago, after I started uh, teaching on human trafficking, I would get to a part in my in my story, um, cause I tell my, you know, sort of my survivor story mm-hmm. during these presentations to give some context, to what we're talking about. Um, and I am one who's always been very logical, very, um, detail oriented. I'm very, I'm like, you know, it's gotta be perfect. I have a list for everything. Um, and completely non-emotional. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I just don't, you know, I don't go there. Um, a few years after starting to tell my story, I started to, in front of people started to cry. And that was not me. I was like, this is not happening. You know, I could tell my story, no problem. It was very rote and just how it was. Um, so I, I sought out a counselor because I was like, if anything, I just need some like tips and tricks, you know, to kind of get me through the seminars without having a meltdown. So um, I didn't realize at the time that was relatively normal. 
so I, I found a therapist and, um, it took a while. I didn't really recognize it, but I have always, uh, usually when I'm talking to other people, I've had to consciously now reprogram myself to say I mm-hmm. and me instead of we and us um, mm-hmm. and our, because that's been my vocabulary. So I went into the, the therapist's office saying we, you know, we did this and we didn't. She's like, who's we? <laughs> who's we, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then she, she asked me, she said, can you start writing? Let's start journaling every day. Just, it doesn't matter what it is. Just, you know, if you're having a good day, a bad day, or if you had cereal for breakfast, whatever it is, write it down. Um, and began to discover pretty quickly, actually, that my handwriting and my, um, the tone of my journaling began to change. It was, it was really interesting just, um, because it would would go from very, you know, professional, you know, cursive, beautiful writing to this choppy block, had no idea how to spell, um, you know, very basic. So it was like, what is going on? Um, and, and discovered probably about a year and a half into therapy. She's like, I think we need to look at the dissociative, you know, piece of this again. And I, I scored off the charts for dissociation and, um, you know, so DID. So the DID was the official diagnosis because I had been missing time as well. Um, and sometimes I would look in the mirror, I would have severe dysmorphia. You know, I was like, that's, that's not even close to who I am. I don't know what the heck's going on today. <laughs> so um, wow. that is yeah. so interesting. And I even read that there's can be physiological changes in a yes. person's blood pressure or yes. you know, different, different physiological markers. So when people have DID, do they have uh, male identities, female identities, child identities, adult identities? Yeah. So it's different with everybody. With me, um, we're all girls, um, you know, little to, to um, you know, age 44, which is what I am. Um, so I was diagnosed in my late 30s. Um, but there are some I know in groups who who have male, female, um, some are transgender, some are, you know, they identify as all sorts of different um, genders, but also we have some that identify, um, as animals, um, or objects. Um, I don't quite have my head wrapped around that because it's just not part of our system. Um, but you know, when you're in the magical phase of childhood and development, you know, I can see how that transition would, would yeah, occur. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, what is the goal to unite the identities or is that not the goal? Um, again, it's different for everybody. For some of my parts, that is a very threatening kind of thing. They're like, you know, if we if we become integrated and become whole or one or whatever, um, that means um, it's very fearful that they're going to just disappear and go away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not our goal. Our goal is to actually integrate memory. So when we're sitting in a, in a therapy session, you know, there's a lot of, um, obviously, we're doing trauma work right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when those memories come up, or if I've got like, um, I've got a 10 year old, and she's experienced a lot of trauma. Um, and she's talking about a certain experience. Um, if I am co conscious, right, if I if I've sort of there, but not there, um, I can listen to the story and know the story, but I hadn't known the story before. So when we all start to get on the same page, okay, well, the 10 year old experienced this, and we all know it now, okay, you know, we can kind of integrate that memory from you know, being stuck in the past Mm -hmm. to something that we can say, you know what, that, that happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not happening now. This is where we're at. Everybody's on the same page. Uh, And it's a very slow, rigorous uh, process to get all the parts and memories together, but that's the goal. 
that makes sense because you'll have to find out which identities know what, and then yes. get those identities up to speed. How many identities do you have that you have learned about? Um, 12 and counting. We've got um, some that we call like the lost ones. Um, they're kind of just hiding in the background because it's a very uh, scary thing. And we've got some who uh, like to be up front. So it kind of shoves the other ones in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're kind of balance things out a little bit. But but right now, um, 12 for sure. And do um, they have names and everything yeah, to so- go with their identities? Um, some of them do, some of them, I just, you know, we call them by their age. So six and 11 is just because they're six and 11. Um, Mimi is four and Mimi was, um, it was actually a nickname when I was little, but it was kind of a negative. It was called screaming Mimi. Cause I, apparently I screamed all the time. Uh, so, but Mimi wouldn't let go of her name. So she was like, I'm Mimi. Um, so, and some of them chose their, their names. Um, one, my, my teenager based on a book. Um, so she's Audrina. Um, but you know what? The professional is just the professional. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just, um, it's just different for each one of them, but we try to, um, encourage the names, you know, so they do have a specific place and identity. It's not just lost in the mix. So yeah, if somebody wants to, learn more about, you know, DID, what are some recommendations that you might have? Um, I would first, uh, if they want to learn more, honestly, um, the body keeps the score. The book is, um, I know it's very popular. Um, Bessel van der Kolk is amazing. Um, but it really explains how the mind, the body, and the spirit are all connected. And dissociation is just part of that process to keep the, you know, the person alive. Um, and, and Dr. Daniel Siegel as well. He's, um, he, he did a series called the neurobiology of we, and, uh, it's amazing to just understand how trauma works and that kind of thing. So, um, so those are the two main recommendations I would, I would give. So, and when you finish with your PhD, is that your goal then to work with others that have DID? Is that what the goal is to really, um, develop programs that help survivors who have DID um, heal. That is the goal. I really want to make sure that we're integrating things that actually work. So I know a lot of the, um, you know, people talk about EMDR and that kind of thing, which is great for for people who've experienced one kind of trauma, but um, inexperienced therapists who are doing EMDR with somebody who's got 20 different personalities is going to be a disaster. (laughs) So um, we've got to make sure that we're applying the appropriate, uh, you know, a diagnosis, first of all, and then um, clinical treatment. So when it comes to DAD, but I really the ultimate goal would be to make sure that people understand this is not some scary, weird, made up Hollywood kind of thing. You know, um, Hollywood has made it scary. Like we all have these weird demon parts running around killing therapists and that's just not how it is. So, um, that's really the goal. And my, my sole purpose at this point is to, um, do a study. And you had mentioned earlier, the, the, the biological, the physiological changes that happen when parts come and go and that kind of thing. Well, we've noticed, um, even in myself, I wear a Fitbit during my uh, therapy sessions, but uh, we've noticed that there is a drastic drop in heart rate uh, variability while these parts are present. So trying to you know, make sure that we connect all the appropriate pieces so that we understand better 
um, what DID is and how to how to treat it. Now, why do you suspect the heart rate drops? Um, my resting heart rate is about 67 ish, 66. Um, so, um, but during therapy sessions, when a little one comes out, it drops to about 54. So, and that's about my sleeping heart rate. So, um, it didn't really occur to me. I had read a couple of studies. Um, it's called autonomic blunting. So when people dissociate this autonomic blunting, it's, it, it mirrors that, that freeze, um, mm. response that we have during survival. So um, I really, that's sort of my area of study right now when it comes to, um, you know, people with DID and the physiological impact that it has. So, so, so very interesting. (laughs) And I think that your work is going to make an amazing difference because I think a lot of people, including myself, don't know a lot about DID and it's got to be involved in the survivor population just because of the chronic long-term trauma um, that a lot of them have experienced. So I am, we're so fortunate um, to have you studying this issue and moving Mm -hmm. forward on this issue so we can learn a lot more about it. And there is a lot of stigma around it. And so you mentioned a book. Are there any uh, more documentaries or do you do any presentations or where can people learn even more about it? Yeah. So um, people can reach me either through that website or the, um, you know, the email address because um, I do, you know, presentations on DID as well. Um, there is a documentary on Amazon Prime um, that is the closest to reality that I've, I've seen. And it's fairly recent called Many Sides of Jane. Um, and she's a sort of like a Facebook friend kind of thing going on, but, um, but the documentary on her is, is much more realistic than anything, uh, I've seen. So, and they kind of follow her throughout her day and they, they track her switches and things like that. So, um, that I would recommend. Um, yeah, other than that, I mean, there's not a ton, you know, of sort of easy to absorb information out there. Um, and so what kind of recommendations would you make in terms of treatment? You said EMDR would be a disaster. And yes. um, I want to ask you why that would be a disaster, first of all. Yeah, um, EMDR, it generally, because you're working with one traumatic event kind of thing, right? So, um, but when you're in an EMDR session and you bring up one traumatic, you've got 20 different parts and you've got 20 different parts wanting to say you know, or bring up what's happening, it could be completely overwhelming um, and re-traumatize the person uh, through all of these different events that are coming up at once. So, so that's why I say it's a very, you know, it, it might be a quick release for somebody who's, who's been through one or two traumas and really needs to move on. Um, but for those who have endured developmental trauma through the formative years, uh, you've got to sort of back it up, you know, and go back to the, the foundation, first of all, safety. Right. So a lot of times when we're talking about survivors, they never really got to that place, even in infancy, where they realized the world was a safe place. Mm-hmm. So creating safety is rule number one. Um, I realize with the whole COVID thing, that has sort of broken down a little bit because it's hard to pick up on physical cues when you're virtual instead of face to face, sitting in an office with somebody. Um, I'm very grateful my therapist never went, you know, virtual. Um it would have destroyed <laughs> a lot of work that we've been doing, but safety is number one. You've got to have a, um, a safe relationship with somebody uh, to start bringing out all of those, those traumas. Um, for me, when I'm at home and I'm not with my therapist, 
uh, music and art um, and journaling. So those are my go-tos because what we realize is those who've been through a lot of trauma, um, the two parts of their brain don't really uh, communicate very well, right? That corpus callosum is kind of frayed a little bit. Um, so for me, I, I lived a lot of my life on the left side with the logic and the language and the the lists, you know? <laughs> so, um, and sometimes people live in their emotions. They live a lot on the other side. So we've got to find a way to bring a balance to the two. You know, we've got to find a way to um, create a painting and say that felt like this. So now I can attach a feeling or an emotion with the word, with language. Um, and, and, you know, and yoga can be a part of that, any kind of physical activity. So, you know, finding ways to make those connections is really important. Um, but I found too, autobiographical journaling is um, very, very helpful. But I wouldn't recommend going through a healing journey without some sort of professional to go through it with you. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so there, there's not really one type of methodology yet that we know of that someone can say, well, I can just use this methodology. It's mm -hmm. sort of like moving a long time in a, in a space that's safe with someone and sort of bringing those identities so that they can, I guess, respecting and appreciating and, helping those identities to feel safe. Right. Um, so yeah, I would imagine a very skilled um, therapist, a very skilled and caring and empathetic therapist yes. would be wonderful. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Amy, anything you'd like to share with people who are advocates, they're trying to do their best. They're trying to work with survivors and they're not clinical counselors. They're not clinical therapists, but what can they start to look for um, just enough where they can say, hey, maybe I need to get you to a therapist to have a full evaluation. This could be a possibility. What should they be looking for? Yeah. So I would say like rapid mood changes or what seems like rapid mood changes, you know, um, when you're going from giddy laughter to, to crying or, you know, if someone seems very professional one moment and just weeping the next. Um, but also that, that dissociative amnesia that we talked about is someone's like, I don't know where the time went, or, you know, that person said that I met them like two days ago. I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, those are things that, um, I would tend to look at. And I would tell those who are working with survivors, cause I know a lot of like outreach survivors and things like that. They don't have the clinical background to, um, to sort of assess in the field, you know, um, so I, I would recommend every survivor right, get some, get some, um, professional, you know, help. And not everybody with DID needs like a DID therapist. You just need a therapist who's willing to establish relationship, um, safety and connection and willing to learn with you. Um, because a lot of, you know, people with DID don't know they have DID until they're, they're sitting there and they're four years old and they have no idea what the heck just happened. Um, and a lot of therapists have no training in it because this is not something that's been out there or, you know, taught in schools. So um, colleges. Um, so, so those would, the, would be the things that I would, I would definitely look for. And I would tell any professional out there too. One of the biggest things that I learned working with survivors is, um, you plant the seed and, and, and it's up to them to do with it, what they can and what they want to do with it. Um, I think I spent a lot of years sort of beating myself up that I didn't, that I couldn't do enough, that I couldn't do more, that I couldn't, but survivors have to participate in their own rescue. They have to participate in their healing. It's not something that we can do for them, but we plant the seed over and over and over again. Um, and every time they come back, we're there for them again. 
Um, but I, I think that's really important because burnout happens so fast. I love that, Amy. And thank you so much for being you. And thank you for taking us on this journey with you. And I wish you so much luck and happiness. And I know that you are going to continue to have your footprint all over this issue and all across the U.S. and hopefully around the globe. So thank you so much. And I appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Wow. An amazing woman. Definitely. You know, I just think about my struggles and my problems and what stresses me out. And when you see someone that has suffered so much and to not only survive it, but thrive, that that's truly amazing. I know. I think about my problems, too. And I, I know that I have been engaged in trivia pursuit uh, because my problems can't even compare. But her life is so fulfilling. I mean, you're right. She's gone from surviving to thriving. I mean, she's a doctoral student and she will no doubt contribute really meaningful in meaningful ways to the world when she's really focused on this DID as her topic. So I'm just so proud of her. I don't even know her really, really, but not really well, but I'm just so in awe of what she's been through and what she's been able to accomplish. You know, it's like um, she talked about, uh, you know, parts of the brain sort of that gets cut off or parts of pieces that take on the trauma and grow with the person. And then they start to have their own ages and names and hobbies and likes and dislikes and, um, Most of them have a specific role that they take on to take on the pain um, or to get schoolwork done or to make sure the family is happy. And so it's it's a lot of uh, protection in a sense, like she described. Each, Each identity has a purpose and has a place. And it's really a way of protecting against trauma. And and she really describes it as essential, really, for some people to survive. Yeah, and I noticed she said about uh, 3.5% of the population has DID. That's not really a small percentage. I know. And when you think of the fact that it's happening to a traumatized population and, and our advocates listening work with traumatized populations. And so that's why DID is so important. It's an important field to study uh, for survivors. It's important for advocates to understand, um, you know, that that can happen to people who experience extreme trauma or long-term chronic trauma. Right. And I thought it was interesting. She even said her personalities had different handwritings, um, different tones uh, when they spoke, and that they were likely to change into a different personality when Uh, she was in a threatening situation. Right. That's so fascinating. And, you know, and the thing that struck me, like, is, is the goal to integrate the personalities? And no, it's not. It's to integrate the memory so that each of the personalities has a consistent memory. And it's about creating safety and, you know, establishing a safe relationship with your therapist and they, she also mentioned doing a lot of music and art and journaling and ways that um, you can become functional and healthy and all those things. 
And then I really like that she talked about the uh, EMDR, the eye movement uh, desensitization reprocessing, which is the up and coming thing. Like that's the hit thing to, uh, you know, deal with trauma. And she says it would be an absolute disaster with somebody that has DID because you're focused on typically one traumatic event where these folks have suffered chronic events often. And then you have 20 different, you know, personalities. So that would just be, you know, too, too overwhelming. So, you know, Amy Joy fights for her health every single day in ways that most people don't even understand. So some, some, someone said mental health needs more sunlight, more candor, more unashamed communication. And I think we got that today and we need more of it. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.